A pariah state, Europe seals off the UK. Brexit looms still with 10 days to go. What did the weekend's event spell for the negotiations? And please God, some relief. A vaccine roundup. Monocle's editors tackle those topics today on the late edition here on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to the late edition on Monocle 24. I'm Andrew Muller. I'm joined today by Monocle's news editor, Chris Chermack, who is in Vienna, and by Monocle 24's head of radio, Tom Edwards, who is here in the studio in London. Welcome both. Um, Chris, I'll start with you in Vienna. Are you enjoying a nice, relaxing start to Christmas week over there on the increasingly remote continent of Europe? Well, it's uh, very strange to have actually made it here, Andrew, I have to say. I came here... On Thursday night, uh, flew over just before you know all the uh, all the craziness broke out. Uh, I should say that I did uh, shield before arriving, and then I got a test on Friday, uh, so I will not be a spreader of this new virus strain over here in Vienna. But yes, it is a bit strange to suddenly have arrived on the other side of this and then get the news. For that matter, I don't know exactly when I'll be able to return. We'll see how all of that works. <laughs> it's exciting speaking to someone in Vienna. I feel like Richard Nixon speaking to Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin in 1969, live from the moon. Um, Tom Edwards, still here in London and frankly unlikely to be leaving anytime soon. Um, has this spoiled your preparations for Christmas at all? Um, you know, a, a modest plan has got more modest in the last 48 hours. Um, Listen, it's extraordinary, isn't it? The the pace of change. We sit here talking on what a, a Monday evening. One didn't think there was this far to go, just in the space of a few short hours. But Boris's pronouncement on Saturday evening uh, spelled out the next crazy chapter, and obviously we're still seeing and hearing, indeed, literally as the as the minutes and hours pass, uh, more reaction from around the world, from other countries. Forty plus now with travel bans. Um, I don't know. I kind of felt like we'd hit the nadir, um, but we just keep on. We keep on bombing ever lower. Well, indeed, and let's move on formally to today's topics because here in the UK, as Tom has just been foreshadowing, Prime Minister Boris Johnson is continuing to demonstrate that, vexingly, the aspects of Winston Churchill's example he hasn't wished to follow are decisive leadership and clear communication in a crisis. In something of a be-careful-what-you-wish-for parable for Johnson and his fellow Brexit enthusiasts, the UK has been increasingly detached from Europe over this weekend. Following that detection, of a virulent new strain of COVID-19 in Britain. Dozens of countries have banned arrivals from the UK. Uh, here is Lance Price, former Director of Communications at 10 Downing Street, speaking on today's briefing. The new variant of COVID-19 isn't Boris Johnson's fault. It's not anybody's fault in the British government. But their reluctance to recognise what so many other people around the world were recognising and what their own scientific and medical advisers were telling them which was that the original plan for a five-day Christmas virtual free-for-all in the UK was just madness. Um, for that uh, only to dawn on them on Saturday in the light of the new virus, I think uh, does call into question their competence uh, at the end of a year when actually, frankly, that competence has been called into question many times. 
Uh, Tom Edwards, as you know, uh, as an Australian interloper in this country, I consider myself something of a connoisseur of the masterly British understatement. And I think we we have just heard from Lance there something of a classic of the genre. I I will repeat it. Uh, He says, I think it does call into question their competence. Um, when When a British person, especially an English person, says, I think this calls into question your competence, if you could translate that uh, for the rest of the world? Uh, well, I, I can't say the words I wanted to say, Andrew. For the, for do, do, of... Does it rhyme with ducked it up? Uh, very much so. <laughs> I mean, it's extraordinary. You alluded to this idea, and Boris Johnson always tries to style himself as the as a, a Churchill of, of our day. He's written a, a, a biography of the man. Um, I think he has had his Churchill moment, uh, and unfortunately, I think he looks in it like Neville Chamberlain. And this is the problem. Boris Johnson cannot, um, he's never been a, a politician to deal with detail, to um, be fascinated in uh, process and substance. He's an 11th hour merchant. He's a chance taker. He's someone who relies on bombast and charisma. And what we have here is this confluence, this perfect storm or whatever lies beyond a perfect storm. And he's not equipped uh, to, to deal with it. And I think Lance has it exactly right. It comes at the end of a year when he's demonstrably been incompetent um, but the stakes have never been higher and I know we're going to talk a little bit about this you know where where is there left to go now but we do have this extraordinary we're at this moment of, of an inflection point where you know something has to give and it I, I, I don't know I, I can I can remember no British government in my lifetime uh, that's encountered a moment like this and that includes some pretty incompetent uh, rabbles at times, <laughs> um, but I think we're going back to the mid twentieth century. So I'm I'm skipping, you know, the seventies. I'm skipping the three day week and all the rest of it. I think you've got to go back to wartime to find anybody who's facing a challenge and making such a hash of it as this. Um, Chris, I'll come back to you in far away Vienna. Um, is anybody in Europe still paying attention to Britain shooting itself repeatedly in both feet, or is is Vienna, I guess, and the rest of Europe now more concerned with its own issues. Oh no, they're they're absolutely concerned with Britain shooting itself in both feet, but in the sense that they're concerned about the impact that that will have on their own domestic efforts to control this virus. And so I think there is a tremendous amount of concern here. And in some ways, you know, Andrew, to be honest, it feels a little bit like how it felt at the start of the virus, if you will, uh, when this was something, you know, from far away, whether it was from China or then from Italy, and trying to prevent it from arriving, <laughs> um, you know, in, in different countries. And that's kind of what the attitude, what the news has reflected over here um, is is this sense of like, you know, we want to prevent this second strain from arriving. And so that's why you've obviously seen all of these efforts to uh, limit travel, to cut off contact with the UK as best as possible. Um, that, you know, is, is there a little bit of a trust question in there uh, to do uh, the understatement that Lance Price was doing so well before? Um, perhaps that they don't, you know, they wonder how prevalent this has been in the UK and they wonder if they're getting the right information and so on and so forth. But more importantly, they're simply worried because they have been testing people here. They are finding that so far, at least, it has not properly reached 
the continental Europe. You know, there's been isolated cases here and there, but it's mostly been a few people. Um, so they have it under control, and that's that's really the key. They want to keep it under control, and if they have to uh, keep uh, Brits out of the con- you know out of the continent in order to do that, then so be it. Well, on the subject of views from Europe, we also heard earlier from Tyler Brule in Zurich. Well, if you look at some of the headlines uh, in in the papers, uh, certainly in a lot of the German press, we've been seeing the word pariah state being used. Uh, now, this is not something that you throw around uh, lightly. And of course, you know, and, and I think as, as Lance was saying as well, you know, there have been so many missteps uh, on the part of of this government, of, of Boris Johnson's government over the last year. Uh, you know, it just you know, fits and starts, you know, uh, throughout, and and certainly you know the stop and start uh, notion of of how to deal with this. And then there's just you know, the pure comms issue. I mean, that you had the health secretary Matt Hancock. You're taught, you know, really using the words out of control. No one wants to be quoted and heard to be using the world the words out of control. But that's, of course, what is what is popping up in the media all over the place. So this is very much a situation uh, which is it's on number 10's watch and and it's it, it really, I mean, unfortunate viewing. Uh, you know, when we have you know just a little over a week to run to the end of the year. Uh, It is all regrettably timed, uh, as Tyler correctly notes, because the ticker is also counting down on Brexit or the to the latest Brexit deadline, which is now 10 days away and still no deal seems in sight. Uh, We heard earlier from Vincent McAvaney on The Globalist. Vincent is a political reporter and Monocle 24 regular, and he commented on the strangely prescient scenes unfolding now on England's southern coasts. We've all talked for many years about what would happen in the event of no deal Brexit. And we're seeing those plans uh, come into effect early because Kent police overnight have announced Operation Stack, uh, which means that on the M20, the motorway which goes down to that port, uh, they will be using two lanes to stack lorries on the side of the road. Uh, 10,000 lorries make that crossing every single day. It is a critical supply line to the United Kingdom, particularly, of course, for food. And on the other side in France, you have... Uh, lorries waiting now to come over with food for British shells for Christmas uh, and companies are probably unwilling to send them over right now and the lorry drivers themselves unwilling to make the crossing if they don't know if they can get back. Uh, Tom, it's it's not a masterclass so far. This either is it in preparing a country for a radical, massive recalibration uh, of its trading arrangements. Uh, no, another uh, another understatement. <laughs> and it is interesting. I think what what Vinny's talking about there is 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 interesting because we haven't been able to game scenarios. Really, you can do them in in hypotheticals, but we keep sticking down to this moment. What will happen when? You know, we leave the EU uh, and and revert to, to WTO rules. And I think he's right. We're seeing that if you go into these things with a lack of preparedness, with um, uncertainty on both sides, you get more disorder and you see how immediately confusing and damaging it is and how confusion begets more more confusion. One thing that is interesting, this takes us right back to discussions we had, you know, from 2015, 16 onwards about about Brexit. One of the uh, pieces of logic that was used by the, the ardent Brexiteers was this question of, you know, uh, protecting our borders, uh, reclaiming sovereignty, t- taking back control, these, these sorts of, of narratives. And what we've seen throughout this whole year with the pandemic crisis is an absolute failure of Britain and the leadership in the UK to, to do exactly that. You know, one could argue Britain 
was in a better position to try and make a meaningful uh, stand almost against uh, the spread of COVID, separated from our European friends as it is by that by that body of water. Other island nations, hmm. we were talking about this earlier, have done exactly the same thing. And our singular failure uh, to institute any kind of coherent position, and there's lots of countries who've maybe got things right or wrong, but as this speaks to what Tyler was saying, at least there was a coherence about the cons, about the narrative. At least you felt somebody had a conviction that was maybe born out of some trust of science or the efficacy of a particular political position. This completely slipshod, haphazard way of uh, dealing with the crisis, I think, has helped to shape what we have now, which is something that is probably even more unsettling, disturbing, open-ended and potentially more impactful than it needed to be. Just to follow that up, Tom, it, it is really weird when you think back to those early months of this pandemic and around uh, you know, March, April, May, that this government of all governments, as you said, elected on the basis of this hardcore ideological programme of re-establishing sovereignty, controlling borders, etc. If in around March or April, and I speak, this will surprise a uh, few listeners, I suspect, as somebody who voted Remain and frankly, has not had their mind changed about the wisdom of that decision by the last four years. But if the government had announced then, announced then, look, this is what's happening for that is for that reason. We are going to follow the lead of countries like New Zealand, Australia and Taiwan. We are going to prevent you know, incoming arrivals, whether they're tourists or not. We're going to suspend flights. We're going to start taking a very close interest in ships and trucks arriving. I think all but the obviously certifiable at that point would have gone, yeah, OK, that seems fair enough. I mean, who in those circumstances would argue against a hardcore reassertion of border controls and yet they didn't do it? Well, this is it. It's one of the few examples where to adopt that kind of position, which is generally, you know, taken because of some ideological considerations rather than anything pragmatic, uh, would have made eminent good, se good sense. And I think it just underscores for me the incompetence of an administration, as you say, who are essentially in office on a handy majority precisely because they maintain this position and said, you know, we'll get it done, that they weren't able to, to join the dots. This is the problem. This is not even an administration that is um, blind to certain challenges because of its adherence to a particular ideology or to its steadfast, you know, doctrinaire position on something. They are making it up as they go along. I, I, we go back to what Lance said. You know, th these are these are not even the reassuringly, uh, you know, grey suited career politicians of yore who we might have bemoaned for their lack of, you know, pizzazz and excitement. These are. I, I don't even know what what Boris Johnson is anymore, other than incompetent. Um, Chris, to come back to you in in far flung Austria. Um, Austria, of course, was one of those countries that did not have the option uh, of deciding to completely seal itself off from the world because it has several neighbours on the other side of land borders, which means you have to think about these things differently. But returning to Austria now, nearly a year into this thing, what's your general sense of how well or otherwise Austria? despite that challenge, has done in dealing with COVID-19? Well, a, a couple of things. It's interesting, as you were talking there about the simple idea of closing borders, I found it interesting looking at the European Union today, but also in March, because, uh, you know, to Tom's point, there was a reluctance among the EU as well to close borders initially, a sort of scoffing also at, say, Donald Trump for closing borders um, because, of course, it also fell into sort of this right wing 
uh, view uh, when it came to halting immigration and so on and so forth. This time around, of course, you know, with, with the UK, as we're now seeing, there is this immediate reaction, <laughs> closing borders to prevent this virus coming through. And in terms of Austria, what I find interesting is that they have have always actually been, uh, you know, they were among the first uh, to sort of try and restrict travel because it did fit into their, uh, you know, to put it put it to put it uh, a bit understated as well. But their their somewhat anti-immigration stance of this of this government of Sebastian Kurz. So it was perhaps a bit more of a natural move to close borders than than other uh, countries in the European Union had. In terms of their general approach, um, yes, there was there is a difference certainly compared to the UK in that, uh, you know, Austria has a very young leader in Sebastian Kurz, and yet, yes, he was praised for his communication, particularly in the first phase um, of this back in March and April, for quickly reacting, for quickly imposing uh, lockdowns in Austria. This time around, it has been a little bit different. And so I do think as much as, you know, you, you've, you've talked about there as well, um, the, the troubles, the incompetence of, of Boris Johnson's government, perhaps, I do think it's a sign of just how difficult this has become, that it feels like no government has got this exactly right. And Austria certainly, too, has been at various points over the last few weeks and months on the back foot because they also did not want to go into a full lockdown. And so they did wait longer than other countries before imposing a more stringent lockdown. They've also had a lot of debate here over ski resorts and what to do with those and whether those would remain open or not. And so it was only actually a few days ago that here too, Sebastian Kurz had to come before the cameras and basically announce, you know, essentially a third proper full lockdown starting on the 26th of December. So they're waiting one day after Christmas to give people until then to still have a certain degree of normalcy. But he did have to bring that forward. And, you know, he is facing, in that sense, some similar criticisms to what you hear in the UK about why did he have to wait so long, all of a sudden changing gears, that it's now the 26th of December, a tougher lockdown. He should have known about this earlier. They should have seen the cases rising. So, yes, the communication was better in Austria. I'd argue it probably continues to be a bit better, but that doesn't at all mean that they're they're free of criticism here in terms of how they've approached this. And yeah, we'll have to see how this how this continues from the 26th of December. I will final point just to say is interestingly, skiing is the one thing where they now still could not make a full decision and they left it up to the individual states, the Bundesländer within Austria to decide whether they would keep skiing open or not. So some states are going to keep skiing open, but still to only very limited, basically only to Austrians. So uh, anyone who is hoping to travel here for the holidays, which is hard anyway with travel restrictions, but that will not be allowed. Okay, well, I want to try and close off today's programme by broadcasting some good to good-ish news. Um, the European Medicines Agency is set to announce its decision on a COVID-19 vaccine today. Member states are set to roll out their campaigns from next Sunday. Uh, and on the Atlantic's other shore, President-elect Joe Biden is set to receive his vaccine today, which should hopefully keep him ticking over at least until he is sworn in on January 20th. Um, 
Tom, that is good news, of course, that people are now being inoculated around the world. It seems clearer than ever uh, that that really is the only thing that's going to get us out the other side of this. Um, There is an interesting difference there, I think, though, between the United States and the United Kingdom, because what we have not seen here in the UK uh, is any politicians, up to and including uh, the Prime Minister, being inoculated ahead of the more immediately vulnerable, like the old and clinically vulnerable and frontline health workers. I mean, okay, Joe Biden's about to be the President of the United States and he's not getting any younger, probably fair enough, but there's, there's also Cabinet Secretaries and Senators getting inoculated in the US, which which to me at least seems kind of a weird set of priorities. I've found that really arresting, uh, the sight of certain senators from maybe some of the southern states, uh, gamely and you know, broadcasting the fact, getting it out on social media and doing media appearance about it. Very strange. Um, and perhaps, look, I've put the boot into our politicians here, at least they've got the savvy to uh, you know, underline the fact that the priority must go to those most vulnerable and, of course, to, to frontline healthcare workers. I, I think there'd be really crazy optics if you saw, a, you know, a Matt Hancock or or, or a Boris Johnson um, getting the getting the jab when, you know, we know it's in short supply, and it, indeed it could be in shorter supply <laughs> if we if we can't work on our um, uh, supply lines in in the weeks ahead because of all the problems of Brexit and and COVID in character. Really odd and out of step actually with what my expectations would have been for how the U.S. political elites were dealing with it. Very strange. Chris, to come back to you in unfathomably remote, far-flung, far-away Austria, has there been much discussion there about who is going to get vaccinated and in what order? Uh, well, in terms of Austria, I have to say it's actually they. That's one of the uh, to go back to criticisms of Sebastian Kurz. He hasn't. He's taken his time in terms of revealing what the order will be here in Austria, unlike many other European countries, including Germany, that have already sort of set out their priorities for who is going to get the vaccine, um, you know, when it starts. And it should and it's going to start in about three days with the European Medicines Agency approving it uh, today. Um, it, you know, it's set to start on the 27th of December. So he doesn't have much time left <laughs> um, to to announce his priorities. Um, I did want to jump in on one thing, though, to uh, on on the U.S. just just to make a point. I think that's important with the European versus U.S. discussion of this. There is a lot of distrust of vaccines in the United States. Um, there are polls, both of Republicans, but also, for example, of African Americans, um, who are uh, you know who who don't believe necessarily that uh, the vaccine is going to be something they should take. And so I would say that for that reason, that that is one explanation for me of why it is actually quite important that certain key politicians are shown on TV taking the vaccine as they have been, simply to convince other people to take it. Tom, what have you made of how the UK, the first country to roll out a vaccine, uh, has organised it? Because it has been pretty straightforward. There is a a tiered system. The elderly get first whack at it, along with the clinically vulnerable uh, and health workers and so forth. But I kind of wonder if there is an argument for people who I think have been forgotten a lot during this crisis, i.e. the people who still have to deal with the general public. I think there's an argument for retail staff, for bus drivers, for delivery people uh, to be prioritised. Is, is, is that just crazy socialist talk? Well, it's certainly the way that it's working in France. <laughs> so then maybe the answer to that question is yes. But it, it goes to show, look, you can't get everything right. And I think on that tiered system... 
it's one of the rare occasions where the government seemed to come out with a strategy that had some efficacy and it stuck to it and it was clear with its communications about it. So I would give them that. But I think you're right. I mean, I think France, maybe people, you know, transport staff, uh, cab drivers, people who work in, as you say, um, public facing retail are are higher up the, the list. And I certainly think they should be in a shower. And you would think that would um, tie in with the government's clearly very profoundly held sense that, you know, we must support businesses and those keeping businesses running as well, if that doesn't seem, uh, you know, callous, given how how high the stakes are. Um, I wanted to ask you a question, Andrew. Please. Turning things round on the late edition a little bit, <laughs> grilling the, 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 the person in the chair. My, my question to you is this. Tyler talked about this idea of, you know, the German and Swiss press is talking about Britain as a pariah state. As an, an, an Australian... In, in Britain, but effectively, effectively one of us. Careful. Is that, is that what we've got to look forward to? A, a pariah status? We can surely drag ourselves on, even though it has got super bad. Is that what we need to, to live with? You, you don't look certain one or the other. Uh, I, I'm really not. It, it, it has been strange. I, I, am not, I am not a British person, though I have lived here for many, many years, and obviously I haven't come for the weather. I, I, live, I, I live here because I like this country, I like quite a lot of the people in it, and so forth. Um, it has been odd as an outsider, though one hopes kind of an inside outsider at this point, watching it just embark on this bizarre act of, of self-harm over the mm. last four or five years, because, you know, I I do think that there is something to what people think of as a lot of these stereotypical British virtues, that it is a country which values, you know, practicality and reason and compromise and and muddling through. And there is something to be said for that. And Britain's entire relationship with the European Union had been a classic British muddle slash fudge for years. Um, through which, weirdly, Britain had, as Britain throughout history vexingly often has, got itself far and away the best possible deal just by being, you know, really quite difficult to deal with at some level. Um, I I really hope uh, that Britain finds a way through this and out of this. It's... In, in the same way that the United States, a country for which I also have enormous and increasingly unfashionable regard, uh, has found a way out of its self-inflicted wound by voting out the bloke they voted in, um, undoing what Britain has done to itself is going to be a much, much more difficult and much, much more time-consuming uh, process. But yeah, I, I, I can only hope it is a challenge to which, clearly not this government, but subsequent governments and sub- subsequent generations of British people prove equal. That's a very good answer. I, I, I hope you're. I hope you're right. I, I was quietly well. pleased with it, having had no preparation <laughs> for it. Um, we, we, we are coming towards the end of today's edition of the late edition. Um, in recognition of the fact that it is Christmas week, I'm going to try and sign this off on a somewhat festive note. Um, Chris, in far-flung remote. Far, okay, that's that joke's getting old by now. But in Vienna, um, what have you actually got planned for today? I know it's not Christmas yet, but are are celebrations and observations? actually underway? Uh, Celebrations and observations uh, will get underway on December 24th. I'm a traditional Austrian when we celebrate in that sense on Christmas Eve rather than Christmas Day. But I will be starting to do a little bit more 
Christmas shopping ahead of that. So that that will be uh, my goal over the next couple of days, because as I said, shops will actually still be open here um, until December 26th. So there will be some options here. So that's that's got to be my priority, hasn't it? Uh, indeed. Uh, and Tom, will you be joining in the toilet paper riots at Waitrose this <laughs> afternoon or, or have you got something else planned? Possibly. I'm trying to keep my, I'm trying to just hunker down, uh, hunker down in part of North East London, not too far away from where you'll be, Andrew. Keep my, pa- keep my powder dry and my glass charred. <laughs> yeah, if in any doubt, uh, I'm going to be drinking my way through it and I'll see everyone on the other side in 2021. And on that semi-festive note, that is all for today's late edition. A big thank you to Chris Chermack in Vienna, Tom Edwards here in London, to all our editors today and to our studio manager, Zoe Kilborn. Uh, goodbye and thanks for being with us.